Well, grace is something entirely different. It's something you cannot earn and you could never get, and you didn't do it on your own. It's a free gift. Now, what God did, he sent his son to die on a cross for our sins so that through his grace that we may have eternal life. His grace. His free gift. It's an unmerited gift, a gift that we cannot attain. We can't get salvation by our own good works. So necessity of God's grace is a staple in doctrine. So, as we go through our introduction for our first part, Christianity is unique in the faith that, uh, of the world religions um, of these three truths. So the first truth is its founder is alive and well. All other leaders are dead, whether it's Zoroaster, whether it's Muhammad, he's long dead, Buddha's dead, Patanjali, the guy who created yoga, he's dead. They're all dead. It's amazing. But Christ is alive. Only Jesus Christ is still alive. I am he who lives and, sorry, he who lives and was dead and behold, I live forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Revelations 1. 18. The second is, all good that takes place, supposed to be place, not pace, <laughs> is initiated by God. The truth or falsehood in religion is who initiates what you do. Why Christianity? God alone takes the initiative. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will rise, uh, raise him, up in the last day, John 6, 44. And then the third, total forgiveness is given by sheer grace. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and the not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, in Catholic doctrine, they'll say, well, you need faith and works, because in, John, in James chapter 2, it says faith without works is dead. It's interesting that faith... In the wording precedes works. It's saying that you need faith, and by your true faith, you will have an outpouring of some type of work. See, other religions offer forgiveness, but it's on the basis of good works. Now, the interesting thing here with all other religions is that you never know how good you have to be. For example, in Hinduism, you have karma. In karma, there's no objective truth or objective standard, you don't know what good is until you die and are reincarnated. That becomes an issue now, doesn't it? Because it's either, well, I'm going to attain a higher uh, being or I'm going to go to a lower being. For example, if you're going to be not as good, you're going to be a rat one day or something like that. And it's this perpetual cycle until you're got rid of all your bad karma, wink, wink, right? And then you end up with Brahma, which is the ultimate life force. That's pretty whacked out, because how many lives did you live? See, Christianity alone offers forgiveness by the death of God's Son. Romans 5, 
8 to 9 said, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And who's giving the wrath? It's Christ. Everyone thinks it's the Father. No, in John chapter 5, all judgment has been passed on to me by the Father. So Christ is the atoning sacrifice, yet he is also the righteous judge. So the subject is to be understood in two ways, objectively and subjectively. Objectively, our forgiveness in Christ. We are the benefit of Christ's death with particular reference to the forgiveness of sins. To what extent are we forgiven of all of our sins? That's a good question, isn't it? Because are you forgiven initially and then when you sin afterwards you're not? Or are you forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future? We're going to go through that. Subjectively, are forgiving others. Now, this is a big issue. Because how often do we not forgive people? Quite often. Because what we do is we say, yeah, I forgive you. And you always remember that thing in the back of your head that, that they did that thing that one time. Right? And it keeps playing on in your head. And when you see that person, you kind of remember it, right? Well, have you forgiven them? Because you want forgiveness of sins for you, but you don't want it to forgive someone else's sins, right? How they mess with you or hurt you. But typically, on a daily basis, who do we hurt? We hurt God on a consistent basis. I equate sin with this. Literally spitting in God's face. And that's exactly how it is. So, what is the fruit of our being forgiven with particular reference to forgiving others? And what extent must we forgive others? Total forgiveness. So the Lord has totally forgiven us of our sins. Total forgiveness as though we had never sinned. Imagine you had a criminal record. Judge says, you know what? You're good. You're clean. Nothing else. But you murdered three people. Hey, he could forgive that, right? Look at the son of Sam. He's in prison. He murdered a lot of people. But I think he has true salvation because he's the one guy that says, I don't deserve to be let out. And his ministry is actually thriving in prison. But you're forgiven of all sins. How about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, who did he murder? Christians. Interesting, huh? He oversaw the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. This forgiveness is given to us on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. So we must forgive others of all they have done to us. See, total forgiveness as though they had not done anything wrong. Those who are aspiring to be married one day, and those who are maybe engaged, and those who are married, how often do we do that? You know, <laughs> here's what happens. You're like, yeah, but you always do this. 
You, know, you say it to your friends, you say it to your siblings, say it to whoever. It's always, you always do this, this all-inclusive statement. You literally always do it. But have we forgiven them? No, we haven't. Forgiving is also forgetting. Now, disclaimer, there also is a little bit of wisdom with certain things. When someone's going to do something, they kind of tend to do the same thing over and over again, and you keep seeing them do the same thing over and over again. Like, hey, if you know someone's going to steal your money, you can forgive them, but put it somewhere else. Lock it up. All right? Or don't let them in your house. Talk to them outside. Our forgiveness, forgiving others, is on the basis of God's goodness to us. We forgive because he forgave us. So why is this study important? It reminds us of God's goodness to us. In Psalm 103, uh, 10 to 14, it says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Because it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, for the wage of sin is death. You commit one sin, that equals what? Death. How do we know that? Look in Genesis chapter 3. What happened in the garden? They did one thing. And then he did a bunch of stuff afterwards, but it was one thing. See, not punish us according to our iniquities. For us, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him as far as the east is from the west. They never meet. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. It reminds us what God has done through his son. It reminds us of the benefits of being justified by faith. That means you are justified legally by Jesus' death on the cross and your faith in him. The art of forgiving others can provide the great, greatest spiritual breakthrough you have ever known. Imagine that. I do all the sinning, right? And I actually put my true faith in Jesus Christ and now I'm reconciled to the Father. That's the greatest deal in the world. Who wouldn't take that deal? That's right. People don't want to take that deal. You know why? Because after you have faith, there's this thing called obedience. And most people don't want to deal with that. They think they can get to salvation on their own because they're a good person. I second that because I would ask four questions. The first question is, have you ever told a lie? Everyone's told a lie. You're a liar. My two-and-a-half-year-old, you know what she did? She lied to me, right to my face. I watched her do something. I'm like, hey, did you do that? No. I'm like, come on, man. Come on. At least try to hide it. Yeah, she lied to me. I looked at her. And you know the amazing thing? Ask any parent here. You don't have to teach your kids how to lie. Right, parents? Right? I used to keep, amen, amen. Yeah, don't have to do that. They learn that all on their own. So, we're sinners. And the second question is, 
Have you ever stolen anything regardless of its value? Most people say yes. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Yes. Have you ever lusted after someone? Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So most of the people here are lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterous at heart. And on Judgment Day, we would be guilty, right, according to those standards. That's only four of the Ten Commandments. Wow. So, so now we're going to look at the objective side. God has totally forgiven us in sin, in Christ. The benefits of Christ's death can be summed up like this. Forgiveness of sins in Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is the immediate consequence of justification by faith. So once again, we are absolved of our sins through our true faith in Jesus Christ. It is a forensic Legal, that is the way God sees us in Christ, not the way we feel. You may feel like a wretched sinner, but God sees you as made right and righteous before him. This is our uh, hours by faith alone, not works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 again. It is available to all. That means he died for all sinners. It is applied by faith. I can't establish this more, that it's by faith alone, and it's true faith. What is true faith? How many guys, every time you sat down, you actually thought that the chair was going to break or not hold you up? You didn't even think about it, did you? When you try to turn on your car today, you push the button, turn the key, whatever you did. When you turn on your computer, turn on your phone, you expect it to go on. That's faith. You have absolute faith in him. See, the benefits of Christ's death can be summed up like this. See, imputed righteousness. Imputed, put to the credit of. All that Jesus was and did for us is transferred to us. His sinless life is put to our credit as though we were without sin. Because we go to heaven, eternal life. His blood assures us that the Father does not hold our sin against us, but sees us in Christ. Ephesians 1, 7. Now eternal life. I know it's a little small up there, but I'll read it to you. John three sixteen. So eternal life is used more than one way in the Bible. So the word is the very life of Jesus Christ himself. And John, in 1 John 1, 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our, ha- our hands have handled concerning the word of life, is knowing the Father. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, and they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is an endless duration in heaven. See, we can't comprehend the whole eternal life thing because we don't understand eternity. We understand people live, they die. They're born, they're dead. Things have a shelf life. 
all good things come to an end, right? Wink, wink. Not true. Not true. Because being in Christ, you are assured of your salvation. You can experience the Holy Spirit and the joy of God in this life. And you know what? It gets even better in the next life. Mark 10.30 says, Who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and, bro- houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life? To what extent are our sins forgiven? The sins of the past, Romans 3.25 and Hebrews 8.12. I'm going to be cross-referencing a lot tonight, just so you know. So if you want to write down all your Bible verses, I highly recommend it. If you don't, I'll send you the PowerPoint. Sins committed before we are converted, all of them are washed away, Revelations 1.5. Now the present sin, the blood continues to cleanse our sins, that we walk in the light and that we confess them. So now... Does this mean that we all walk in the light? What's walking in darkness? It's having sin that is in the darkness. Sin that is not seen. It's hidden sin. Because what happens when you walk in the light? Everything's exposed, isn't it? When you're in a dark room, what do you do? You turn on the lights. Why? So you can see everything. Simple. And we are to confess our sins before God. And our future sins are forgiven in Romans 8, 33 to 39. Because we are in Christ by faith. Our position is secure as his. We cannot lose his, uh, Jesus cannot lose his place in the Godhead. So we cannot lose our place in him. John 10, 28. So many people believe that you can lose your salvation. I am one of the people that doesn't think you lose salvation. I think once you're truly saved, you are saved for eternity. Because you see the person of God, you see attributes of God, you see the eternality of Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father. And that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. Seal, when they had a seal, it showed permanence. It showed ownership. So when they sealed the letter with the wax... Every seal was individual to the person. So if we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, that shows permanence. So God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. See John 17, 23. I in them and in you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Have you ever thought about God loving you like that? It's an amazing concept, right? See, whatever our past has, right, whether you know, someone's not loved you or neglected you, you have a Father in heaven that loves you as much as his own son because you've been grafted into the fold. So what about the chastening and the discipline? Who likes to be disciplined? Right? We have to be disciplined. You know why? Because we're petulant little children. Chastening and discipline and forced uh, learning is good for us. 
See, eternal chastening is the warning of the Holy Spirit. That's conviction. You feel that, especially when you read the Word of God. External chastening, when God steps in from without. So, causes something to happen. Internal chastening, when no further repentance is granted, it could mean a premature death. People don't think this stuff serious. When you're in sin, things could happen. Let's look at it like this. Let's say you decide to drink and drive consistently. So one, you're drunk. That's sin. You're putting other people's lives in danger. So you could end someone's life. And let's say you get into a car accident and die. Let me ask you a question. Did you have to drink and drive? No, you didn't have to drink and drive. So, if you didn't have to drink and drive, it was your choice to that premature death. Now, you talk about, well, God's sovereignty. Well, there's human responsibility, too. God allows us to make choices in Christ and out of Christ. So, let's move on. So, question. If God totally forgives us, why does he chasten us? The answer is because he loves us. Chastening is not God's getting even. Chasing is God's treating us as sons and daughters, slash daughters. See, a parent disciplines his child because he loves the child, not because he is holding a grudge. Discipline is given to improve us. So if God chastens you, guess what? That means he loves you. If you withhold the rod, you do not love your son. It says in Proverbs. So God loves us because he wants us to be molded into the image of his son so we may live a correct life as close as possible to the way Christ lived. So chastening is given to us because we haven't been forgiven, but because we have been forgiven. So that's a good thing. So it's proof of our forgiveness and it's proof of our sonship. Not to be chastened is a dangerous sign that we haven't been forgiven. Now the subjective side. Our forgiving others. Another benefit that comes by Jesus is death on the cross that we are given uh, the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. See, the Holy Spirit is a person who as it were, took the place of Jesus in the lives of the disciples. He is the helper, the paraclete that came in after Christ's ascension. See, the Holy Spirit is a person who is also very sensitive. He can be grieved. He can be quenched. See, the result of grieving the Holy Spirit is the diminishing of the fellowship with God, 1 John 1, 7. See, the grieving of the Spirit does not forfeit eternal salvation. The grieving of the Spirit forfeits clear thinking and present mind. So, in short, you act stupid. So when you're involved and you're focused on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you and you are obedient... When you're being obedient, see the underlying theme in all 66 books of the Bible, you know what the amazing thing? It's obedience. God wants us to be obedient. So 
if a parent chases their kid, guess what? They want them to be what? Say it. Obedient. It's an amazing thing, right? But we can grieve the Holy Spirit when we're not obedient. See, the chief way to grieve the Holy Spirit is bitterness and unforgiving spirit. That's not being obedient. You ever deal with a bitter person? What's that person like? They're just miserable. You don't want to be around them. Like, they're just complaining about everything. They hate this one person or this one thing. And all they do is talk about that one person or that one thing and how much they hate it. And they say the same thing over and over. It's like repeat, 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 repeat the same stuff. But bitterness is a deep-seated thing, man, that doesn't go away right away. And you know that bitterness, it just eats away and it starts separating uh, you and God. It just separates that, that relationship. And I'm saying this like in a, not that you can lose your salvation again, but I'm saying like you could just be in complete chastening for a very long time. So I kind of can beat it over the dead, dead horse, so I'm not going to keep going with the bitterness. <laughs> so now the subjective side. So what should flow mostly from being forgiven of all our sins is gratitude. See, sanctification, this is a big word, right? So we have justification, now we have sanctification. So it can be called the doctrine of gratitude. So let's explain what sanctification is first. So there's three aspects of sanctification. First is the positional or definitive sanctification. This is being a part, set apart in God's family. Okay? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. So the minute you're justified, guess what? You start your sanctification process. This is when you are a Christian. When you're about to be justified, that's prior to Christianity. Justification happens, you're automatically in sanctification. So it deals with this present, so the experiential or progressive sanctification, which is working, continue, continuing to be set apart. You look different than the world. See, ultimate sanctification, also called glorification, is when you attain, you, you attain that when you're in heaven. So you have three stages, really. Justification, sanctification, glorification, or ultimate sanctification. So, as we understand sanctification, we are constantly being sanctified to the image of Christ. So we live lives of holiness, not in order to ensure our place in heaven. That's called legalism. We've already got that by the grace through faith. And we live holy lives out of gratitude. Thank you. Lord, for saving my soul. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ. So as we are called to be ambassadors for Christ, should we not hold the kingdom of God in his best interest, right? You, have, has anyone ever been in sales? Like you sell something, right? So they want you to represent their company, right? And when you represent someone's company, you want to look the part, act the part, you want people to like you and things like that, right? Well, it's kind of like that, but even more. You have to be living a holy life that other people see. Because you are the ambassador. You're the representative. People see Christ, are supposed to see Christ in you. You can't say, I'm a Christian, and start acting a fool. You can't say, I'm a Christian, and... 
as men be womanizing. Men, uh, women do the opposite. You can't be getting drunk. You can't be disobeying your parents. You can't be using foul language. You can't be dishonest. People see that. You're held to a higher standard. Once again, not for the, your eternal security in heaven, but you do get rewards based on what you do here on earth. So, sanctification, once again, can be called the doctrine of gratitude. The way you act says almost like a thank you, Lord, for saving me. Now, he doesn't need that from you, but he wants you to be obedient. So one of the greatest proofs of gratitude that is that we uh, forgive others as we have been forgiven. When I know of how much God has forgiven me, I can, tell, I can uh, well afford to forgive you. Have you ever thought about that? I forgive other people because God forgave me. And you know what? I don't deserve it. Do you ever like look at yourself and say, I don't deserve to be forgiven? That's the sad part, because most people don't. They think that they are owed forgiveness. You're not owed anything. Nope. You know what you deserve? Hell and damnation. Yep. Hellfire, brimstone, eternal separation from God. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve, every single person. The wage of sin is death. There's a second death. There's a physical death and then a spiritual death when you can't have communion with God. But when I don't forgive you, I have shown my ingratitude to God for forgiving me. Not to forgive is a sign of self-righteousness. Don't be self-righteous, because you know what? It says humble yourself before the Lord. You know why? Because you don't want God to humble you. That's a scary place to be. Not to forgive is to imply I am better than you. You deserve the same death as everyone else. I would never do what you have done. Really? You might do worse. You know, as I was talking to other pastors, and they said that, you know, we were talking about how, you know, pastors can fall into sin, just like everybody else, right? And you can never say to the point, like, oh, I'll never do that. Because you know how many people say that, I'll never do that. And then all of a sudden, they get desperate. Like, we were talking about this, we were praying for this one guy, his pastor, he ended up stealing money. Pretty bad, right? And one pastor was like, I would never do that. Never say never, man. Just pray for the guy. Because you know what? There might be a desperate time that you might end up doing something stupid like that. You never know what the circumstances are and why someone did it. Now, I don't condone anything he did. Not at all. But I will say, you never know what circumstances you're going to be put in that you may do something stupid. So, yet when I carefully examine what I have been forgiven of, I will see that I have no right whatsoever to condemn another. And that's Matthew 7, 1-2. See, God hates ingratitude because although 
they know God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1.21. When we were conscious that all our sins are forgiven, we will be thankful. This forgiveness leaves us without excuse when we don't forgive others. There was a woman uh, that shot this guy's brother. And I was watching this, this court case. And she thought something he was the wrong person. And she happened to be an off-duty police officer. And there was a situation... And it was, it was a mess of situation, all in all. But I'll say, I'll say this. The brother, you know what he did? Instead of condemning her, he asked the, the judge and the prosecutor if he can give her a hug. And he just wants her to know the love of Christ. How many of us, me included, would want to forgive someone on the spot and hug the person that just killed your brother. So he got real silent real quick, right? Only the love of Christ can do that. Because I know if I wasn't in Christ, there's no way I'm doing that. In fact, in some cases, no way she gets to the courthouse. And that's how you thought. Many of you, that ran through your head. Like, no, that's not happening. But only Christ can forgive that. And if we are in Christ, we can forgive someone that has done that. So our conclusion of this portion, (laughs) when we as believers totally forgive another believer, the consequences are wonderful and indescribable. The Holy Spirit flows within us in Galatians 5, 22-23 and makes us aware of his ongoing inner purifying of our hearts. 1 Timothy 1.5 As this happens, we are becoming more like Jesus. However, if we not totally forgive one another, we become spiritually impoverished. Even if we feel good by getting even. In fact, we are only hurting ourselves when we don't totally forgive. To those of us who do not forgive but harbor resentment and bitterness, God says, let me handle it. Do you guys remember Job? Job 38 to about 41 to 42, he's kind of getting reamed by God. When he starts off, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Pretty much telling Job that he wasn't there. I don't know about you, that's a scary place to be. You don't want God to handle it. Learn quick. So, now, our second portion. What is faith? So now we're going to be going through the necessity of our faith. So we have God's grace, and now we're going to talk about our faith. Could you guys give me a bottle of water for me? Thanks. 2,000 years ago, so the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you notice how we're going through the virgin birth a lot? It had so many different aspects. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Thank you, sir. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. You shall call his name 
Jesus. Luke chapter 1. See, Mary could not figure out how this happened. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. But do not worry, the angel answered. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Verse 35. And this is because nothing is impossible with God. So the question is, did Mary believe this? My question to you is, imagine you're Mary, ladies, and an angel appears before you. It's pretty wild. And says, you're going to bear a son. And you're like, yeah, there's no way. It ain't going to happen. Sarah did the same thing. She was too old to have a kid, right? So Mary's like, I haven't even done that with a man. How's that going to work? I'm not even married. I'll be stoned if I, if I did that before I was married. So she's probably freaking out a little bit. But you see her faith. See, because... You see, she absolutely believed this in the next few verses. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So in a word, Mary believed God. She believed the angel, which meant that she believed God. Do we believe God in what he says? See, nothing has changed. Faith then and now is summed up in two words, believing God. Do you believe God? We say that we believe God. Like, hey, how about this? When we pray, do you say, well, God, you know, I kind of want this. Or could you pray for this person that has stage four cancer? Lord, I want this person to be healed, but I know it's probably not going to happen. So how many of us do that? I actually just had a conversation with someone that did that. Only very honestly, it's like, this is how I feel. You ever feel that way? That God's not going to come through, through prayers? Now, I believe that you have to pray according to his will. But you are supposed to come to the throne of grace with boldness. That means confidence. And your boldness and your confidence is in Christ alone. This is not only believing in God, and there is nothing wrong with that. See, the Apostle Paul could say, I believe God, Acts 27, 25. This is the same as believing God. But believing God puts it more strongly, don't you think? It is one thing to say that you believe in a person, but when you say you believe that person, whatever he or she says it shows an even higher level of trust in their word. You believe them. See, this is how faith was sometimes described in Genesis 15, 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. In Jonah 3, 5. 
So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on the sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. See, it actually might have been read like this, that the Ninevites believed Jonah, for he had proclaimed. Remember, because he was the prophet, the prophet that went to a pagan city that he was trying to run from, and the whole swallowed by a fish and everything. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. See, they believed him. You know, throughout the, most of the Old Testament, it was prophets telling the Israel not to do certain things. And a lot of them were proclaiming things were going to happen, like Jeremiah was going to proclaim the destruction of Israel. And they didn't believe him. In fact, they imprisoned him and slapped him a bunch of times. But how many of us truly believe God? See, before Mary conceived, she believed, she believed God. She did not conceive and then believe. See, this is where our world has gone to. You don't even believe someone's word. How many of us look up Google, Google reviews? Go ahead, raise them high. Amazon reviews. If someone says, I have an indestructible product, blah, 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 or the best phone, blah, 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 are you going to believe them? No, no, you're not. You know, back in the day, what they used to do, right? Someone used to, used to talk with someone, and you believe what they said. And that's how business was done. You had a conversation with someone, you believed that person. Now, you have a conversation with someone, and you look up all the reviews on, on their company. Right or wrong? Right? And so we have a problem believing people. We're natural skeptics. Because automatically you want to check it out. Hey, if you are going to meet up with someone, what do you do? Like, let's say, guys, you're meeting a, a girl, or girls, you're meeting a guy, and then you ask a whole bunch of people about that person. Or you check their social media accounts. Let's see who this person is. It's so true. It's scary, isn't it? You don't believe anything. We can't believe the simplest things anymore. Well, this goes to the big questions. You have five big questions, right? Origin, where did you come from? Identity, who am I? Meaning, why am I here? Morality, the difference between good and evil. And destiny, where do you go after you die? So we have a problem believing basics. Just basics. So we translate all that skepticism into believing God. That's why I say we're not in the Jesus movement, we're in the truth movement. Because we can't find the truth, quote unquote, when I know what the truth is here, it's in the 66 books of the Bible. It's in God alone. That's where the absolute truth is. So we have a hard time believing. So you want to see first and then believe. See, faith doesn't work like that. She believed first. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her 
uh, told to her from the Lord, Luke 1.45. Her faith is seen in her response to the angel. See, he says, Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. What does Paul call himself at the beginning of his letters? He says, Paul, uh, what? A bondservant of Jesus Christ, right? Before he calls himself an apostle. Well, Mary says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Meaning that she is a servant of God. That is it. And that's the most beautiful response right there. See, Jonah did the opposite. He just ran. And then he was corrected, and now he's a servant of the Lord, right? But aren't we like Jonah? We kind of run the other way when things get hard or God calls us to do things. Say, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She immediately conceived, for only a day or two later, she was affirmed as being pregnant by her cousin Elizabeth who is the mother of John the Baptist. See, faith is described, if not defined, in Hebrews 11.1. 1. I'm actually going to read to you Hebrews chapter 11. We go 1 through 3. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by... It, the elders obtain a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Let me ask you a question. We understand that we're here, right? Do you know how exactly that happened? Seriously. You have no idea. And we deal with things that we don't understand all the time, like time, gravity, things like that. But faith is described as, in verse 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The rest of this study is pretty much going to be a kind of an exposition of Hebrews chapter 11. So the description of faith more than a definition describes what faith is. The examples of the rest of Hebrew 11 describes what faith is. Does you can go through like Abraham being faithful and, and all the patriarchs. If you want to get a good understanding of the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews is a good spot. It's pretty much a commentary of the Torah, mainly Leviticus and Numbers, but you get a lot of good stuff. And about the faith, you see Jesus as the high priest. But everything was done in faith, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Guess what? Salvation is by what? Faith. It was never by works. See, this includes everything that is implied in Hebrews 11.1. 1, being sure, certain, believing without seeing, that is, without evidence. See, the carnal, the fleshly, mind wants it to be the other way around. Seeing is believing. See, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. When he was on the cross, they wanted to come down so they may believe. See, those crucified with him also insulted him. Then one came to his senses. 
If you see and then believe, it is no longer faith as far as the biblical understanding of faith is concerned. See, faith, to be pure faith, is not seeing but still believing. In a word, it is believing God. See, faith is based upon God's integrity. The Bible is God's, integri- uh, the Bible is God's integrity put in the line. If you believe that the Bible is God's word, believing it is to be, believe him. See, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So it's for teaching or doctrine, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. By the way, the NIV is the only version that says God-breathed, and that is a direct, literal translation. So I know people say the nearly inspired version. I think that's the dumbest thing you could say. Because if you look at most of the highest level commentaries, academic commentaries by the highest level New Testament scholars, you know what they use? NIV. Interesting, isn't it? So, yeah, don't knock Bible translations. (laughs) Just saying. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but... Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. See, 2 Peter 1.21. See, I believe this is needed more than anything in this time. Don't you think? Remember those five questions? What's the second one? Identity, right? Who am I? Are we not having an identity crisis? Like, for real. Are we not having like an identity crisis? Who am I? What is God, what's God's purpose for me? Hey, what's the difference between a man and a woman? See, I remember that class. It was fifth grade. It was pretty simple to me. We can't even define what it is to be a man or a woman anymore. You don't think we have an identity crisis? These are things, concepts that have been established from the beginning by God. Yet, we mess it up. You notice when people get involved, everything gets messed up? And they ask what the problem of evil is. Why is there evil in the world? I say, my short answer is look in the mirror. Because we are all sinners, right? So we have an identity crisis. See, and the truth is a problem now because what is truth? You have so much information that you don't know how to sift through it. So therefore, you get the surface area. You know, you get your two or three kind of things, generally speaking, and they're like, oh, that's it. Like, you ever try to self-diagnose yourself on Google? It's pretty wild. Like, oh, <laughs> you need to amputate. You need to, like, take, you need a new heart. You need to, it was, literally, it's like, oh, I have a headache. Oh, you have brain cancer. What? It's true. But we have a problem with truth, though. And we have to understand truth. Truth is absolute. It's not relative. Not at all. It's absolute. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Guess what? Those are three or four massive absolute truths right there. Now, am I saying that the Bible is the only source of truth? No. You know why? You know what a tree is, right? 
Did you have to read the Bible to know what a tree is? No. Two plus two. Did you learn that in the Bible? No. That is the ultimate form of truth. Ultimate. But the Bible is written to people that, the writers, they assume that people understood certain things. When they talk about a cedar, a cedar tree, there were certain concepts that they understood. So when people say that the Bible is the only source of truth, they're like, hold on a second. It really isn't. It is the ultimate form of truth, though. Correcting definitions. Once again, truth, right? See, the church needs to recover its faith in the Bible. See, we don't believe these 66 books. We don't. We have a problem here. And that's why you're seeing what's going on now. Chaos. See, the church needs to believe that God was personally involved when he gave us the Bible. God speaking to us. So the Bible was written to us. No, it wasn't. See, a lot of people say that. They say, oh, it was written to us. I was like, no, it wasn't. It was written for us. You know why? Because are you from Galatia? How about Philippi? That's right. You're a 6th century B.C. Israelite. That's right. No. It was written for us, not to us. See, the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible is equally present today. See, he speaks in two ways, indirectly, that is, through the Bible, and directly, that is, as a part from the Bible, but never contradicting or adding to the Bible. Okay, this is a very interesting pneumatological understanding. Pneumatology is a study of the Holy Spirit. Okay, if you start hearing audible voices, seek help. Okay? I don't think God's speaking in audible voices right now. Now, there's yearnings, there's pullings, the Holy Spirit tells you to do stuff, but it never contradicts Scripture. And God doesn't give you a revelation that's new, that's a new revelation that's equal to Scripture. So when they say there's modern-day prophets, that's a false. That's false. That's part of what we call the New Apostolic Reformation. They think there's also modern-day apostles. To be a modern-day apostle, you know what you have to do? See the risen Christ. Paul was the last one. Sorry. So, just saying all that, so we understand where we're going. And Martin Lloyd-Jones did not believe that you can hear an audible voice. See, the Bible was not given to replace direct revelation. It was given to correct abuses. That's what the Bible's for. Harsh words from the doctor, who was the actual physician. That's why they call him doctor. And he went into ministry. He was actually considered the greatest preacher of the 20th century. See, the degree to which we are on good terms with the Holy Spirit will be the degree to which we believe God and demonstrate the kind of faith needed in these times. How many of you go to a secular college? Don't raise your hand. We won't judge you later. No. But they try to push you away from God and secular friends. Even if you go to a Christian college, right? You have non-believers at Christian college, right? They start pushing you away and start bringing on their own ideas. They say, we should deconstruct our faith. Just send them to me. I'll take care of it. Even better, send them to Pastor Jay. Yeah, if you really don't like them, then forgive them. No. So why is this study important? Faith is a vast subject in all of us should explore and try to understand. See, faith is the only way to please God, but without faith, it is impossible to please him 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And we therefore should seek to know how to please God. There is more than one kind of faith, not only saving faith, but achieving faith. I'm going to explain it. To grasp this, to be better, able to handle the word truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. This will help us better understand the gospel and how faith must be exercised after uh, we are saved. So this entire study right now is aimed at helping us increase our faith to have more faith. So saving faith. So saving faith, achieving faith. I'm going to explain them both. So remember the whole justification thing? That's saving faith. This is to believe the gospel. That is believing that God has said about his son coming into the world and knowing that we are saved, John 3.16. Martin Luther, father of Protestant Reformation, said this is the Bible in, the nut, in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that he, Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now keep with Hebrews 11.1 1 in mind. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So this is without empirical evidence. So is that scientific or visible evidence? We have not seen the physical Jesus crucified, resurrected, or ascended. But we believe it. See, in 1 Peter 2, 8, in the ESV, you see the stone stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word and they were destined to do. See, the gospel is presented as righteousness from God that is revealed from faith to faith. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. And just shall live, just shall live by faith. Romans 117. I'm going to sum all this up as we go through. So <laughs> it's getting late. So faith to faith. It's justifying faith. Justifying means that you're made righteous. We talked about justification, sanctification. So when you're justified, you're justified by faith and faith alone. See, Paul didn't stop there. He went to say, on all them to believe. Why? If you don't believe, you won't be saved, even though Jesus believed perfectly for you on your behalf. He believed so hard, he went to the cross, right? See, the object of our faith is God. It is God. It's not a pastor. It's not your friends. It's not anyone else. It is God alone. So we believe God, what he has told us in his word. He tells us to put our faith in his son. In Romans 4, 3. When we put on our faith in God's son, we are credited with his righteousness. So what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. See, our faith is being sure. Like you're sitting in that chair, you assume that was going to hold you up is when we are convinced that Jesus' life and death are what saves us. See, faith therefore assures. It's not perfect faith, but faith nonetheless in the perfect and great Savior. See, it's in Christ alone. 
and we went over Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Achieving faith. So what achieving faith is, if believing God is the best way to die, is also the best way to live. If believing in God is the best way to die, it is also the best way to live. Once again, what is that O word? What's the O word? Obedience. See, saving faith secures our place in heaven. Achieving faith enables us to accomplish the things on our way to heaven. Sanctification. When you're fulfilling the purpose that God has given you. See, in Hebrews 11:2, men of old gained approval. See, you see the faith of Abel, Abel to, to God, more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commanded as righteous, commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, and though he died, he still speaks. See, God wants us to have both kinds of faith, saving faith and achieving faith. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, the Greek literally means... I live by faith, namely that of the Son of God. Do we live by faith? Is it Christ that lives in you or is it you that lives in you? Have you been crucified with Christ? The old self is gone? Well, because we need to be obedient and faithful like Abraham and Moses and Samuel and Paul and Peter. And many people after biblical times, men like George Mueller, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, John Huss, by the way, was burned at the stake. You know why? He was a Catholic priest that started understanding that the Pope is not the head of the church, but Jesus is. He started preaching that. He ended up being burned at the stake for that. So achieving faith... Christ is now at the right hand. God is interceding for us. So, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He always lives to make intercession for them. No wonder why Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. See, our conclusion is saving faith is believing in God. Achieving faith is believing God. Justified, sanctified, and sanctification. We must experience both, and if we do, we can fulfill our purpose that God has set out before us. So, I gave you three hard questions. What is justification? What is sanctification, and what is another term for sanctification? See if you were paying attention. And why should we forgive others? Break them into small groups. We'll be here. We'll be fairly quick tonight. All right. Alora.